I'm Interested with Mike Greenberg is presented by ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Back and better than ever, Greeny here with I'm Interested, and this is a very special edition of this podcast. For the first time, we will have not one, but two interviews. In just a moment, you will hear my conversation with one of the voices of New York Yankees baseball, the legendary Susan Waldman. And usually I will tell my own personal story here so as not to waste the time of the person that I'm interviewing. But in this case, I wanted to tell Susan a story she did not know about what an incredibly pivotal role she has played in my professional life. So in just a moment, you will hear that conversation with Susan Waldman, the voice of the Yankees, and you will hear why she is as responsible as just about anyone for me having the career that I've had. So we'll have that in a moment, and then after that, we will play my interview with Vin Scully, the legendary voice of Dodger baseball for uh, almost 70 years broadcasting those games. He was with me on the radio last week, and the reaction was so extraordinary, we decided we would tack that on here as well. So we will have Susan Waldman, and then we will have Vin Scully on this edition of I'm Interested with Greeny, and we'll do that right after this word. I one more piece of business, and that is a reminder that my new TV show, Better Days, is available right now on ESPN+. Plus. Better, spelled B-E-T-T-O-R. It's sort of a gambling show, but it's more about gamblers than it is about gambling. Crazy stories of crazy gamblers who have extraordinary stories to tell whether they win or they lose. There are four episodes, and they're all available for you right now on ESPN+. Plus. I hope you will check them out. Meanwhile, it is time for the first of two interviews. We will have Vince Scully coming up a little bit from now, but in this moment, it is time for you to hear from Susan Waldman, the voice of the Yankees, in three, two, and one. I'm delighted to get this chance to tell Susan something that I've never had the chance to tell before, and that is that if we were to go back to 1992, I was working at WSCR Radio in Chicago as a producer, and in my spare time, I would go over to Chicago Stadium after my shift. I would, I would produce the afternoon talk show. And then I, I, I begged for the chance to go over to Chicago Stadium after and just do some reporting on the Bulls games that night or the Blackhawks games that night, whoever happened to be home in Chicago. And uh, they would allow me to do that unpaid. I would do it. I would get some sound. They would let me uh, tape a report that would air on the morning show the next day. And that was how I started getting on the air in Chicago. And what we didn't have at the time at the radio station was someone whose job it was to cover the teams on a regular basis. Being from New York, I knew that Susan Waldman covered the New York Yankees as a beat. She was an electronic beat reporter for WFAN in New York. And I went in and I put together a whole presentation for the management of how they should let me do that with the Bulls because the Michael Jordan Bulls at that time, this was 92, were the most popular team in the world, much less in Chicago. And for reasons known only to the people I worked for, they gave me the job. They said, you know what, that's a good idea. And they let me at the age of 24 do it. So as I welcome Susan Waldman to this podcast, Susan, I would say that while you have no doubt inspired countless young women to make a career in this industry, you have also paved the way for at least one man. And for that, <laughs> I finally get the chance to say thank you very much. Oh, you, well, you're very welcome. And I, I love hearing that. Would you like me to tell you why I did that, though? Yes. How I got that? When WFAN, so, this is so great, because in, in 1987, when WFAN went on the air, as I know you know, uh, Ulysses probably don't, I was the very first voice on the air, and I was doing updates. That's what I was hired to do. Um, and trust me, I was not a sports journalist. I came right out of theater, and I thought this would be a really good idea. And I was not the greatest update person. And I, they couldn't fire me because I had a... Uh, a guaranteed contract, so they put me on the overnights, thinking that I would quit, which I did not. So I did updates on the overnight. And as I'm listening at 5 or 6 in the morning when they were doing the sports updates, I noticed that um, we had on FAN beat writers from newspapers covering the team. And what I noticed was that they're not going to give you anything good. 
They're not going to give you stuff that's going to be in a paper six hours later. So you'd get regurgitated stuff that you could read in the paper. So I wanted to get off the overnights, and I went to the then program director and said, listen, this isn't good for us. Why don't you let give me a big tape recorder? I'll take my car, and I'll go. And I went to Knicks games, and I went to Ranger games, and Islander games, and Devils games, and Yankee games, and I got sound and I was a reporter so I could come on at two o'clock in the morning and break stories that's how this started I didn't want to stay in the the overnights and I just got in my car and they were paying me anyway and the guy said sure if you can um, I'm not paying you anymore to do this you got a tape recorder and you got a car that's it so that's how that started and um, I'm really glad that you did that because look what happened that makes me smile that story Greeny thank you well, look what happened for you. That was 1987. And look what happened for me, which was 1992. And away it has gone. So, Susan Waldman, I, I, I Googled you in preparation for this. I, I have listened to you for all of these years that we're talking about. But in preparation for this, I Googled you. And the way it describes you is that you are, quote, considered a pioneer in the male-dominated field of sports broadcasting. To you, what does that mean? Um... I guess it means that I'm old because nobody's a pioneer at 20. Um, I, and I, I think it means a lot now, Greeny, because now I see the results of what I've done because there are slews of young women in their 20s that are now doing uh, minor league baseball play-by-play, and they're really good. And these were little girls when they turned on a radio and there was a female voice. I never had that. I never had that in anything. It never occurred to me to do any of this. I had a whole other career. And I think what it means is that, you know, you're supposed to leave this world better than when you found it. And if there's a whole slew and a whole generation of two of young girls, and I mean young. I mean, they're in their 20s. It skipped a generation for some reason. But they're out there now, and I think that it, that means a lot to me. That's more because maybe I've done something that's kind of lasting. I hear it, too. I hear them not just in baseball, but I hear it in football, in college football. If you watch uh, telecasts of college football as you're switching through, I hear many female voices not doing sidelines, but doing the actual play-by-play. Do you, do you listen to that sometimes and think to yourself, you know what? That's me. That, 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 the, one of the big reasons that's happening is me. Yeah, well, not that. Baseball, yes. I don't, you know, I don't. I don't think I, I don't take credit for the others, but baseball, yes, because when I started and when I first walked into a baseball clubhouse, um, it, it wasn't really good back then. And the stories now, and I know it, I know everybody, all the young ladies that that have um, you know the Twitter accounts, and I guess the harassment can be bad there. But boy, physically and really, in the 80s, it was really bad. It was really terrible. So if um, if I can think that there is no young woman that is ever going to go through what I did. Never going to get spit in the face uh, with tobacco from a center fielder on an ex-World Series team. Never going to get screamed at. Never going to have things. Never going to have to know what it's like to have to have your own police force at Yankee Stadium because someone is literally trying to kill you. I would really hope that that's what I'm thinking of, that these young women are never going to know what that's like. And so how would you Describe what it was like. If they were to say to you, Susan, we, we put up with a lot of crap on social media. We put up with a lot of crap in a variety of ways. But but it is different from what you put up with. How, how would you describe what it was then? Well, I mean, I can tell you, I can tell you stories. Um, what I found back then was an amazing amount of kindness and an amazing amount of, of just cruelty and not a lot in between. Uh, I was lucky because uh, the New York Yankees, obviously, Don Mattingly was in there, and Dave Rigetti was in there, and Ron Guidry was going to get in there, and Dave Winfield was there. So I never had any problem in there. But it was other teams that were not used to to seeing a woman, and it can be, it can be really cruel. I'll tell you the one big story, which is a chapter in a children's book, um, Toronto back then was kind of odd clubhouse, and in 1987, towards the end of the year, they were uh, at Yankee Stadium, and they were going to take the train down to Baltimore. They had a big weekend series, and if they won, they were going to the playoffs. I think they were fighting Detroit then for the for the uh, division, or uh, the pennant. And um, George Bell had not talked to the New York press all year because he thought that the New York press votes had cost him the MVP vote in 1986, and it went to Mattingly. 
Mattingly. So <clears throat> the voting for Mattingly kept him off there. So he wouldn't talk to anybody. What I used to do back then, Greeny, and I don't think mm-hmm. you need to do that anymore, is I would look in a media guide <clears throat> if I didn't know people in a clubhouse, and I would see where they went to school. And I'd look in Toronto, and Jeff Musselman, he went to Harvard. He's not going to yell at me. John Cerruti, he went to Amherst. (laughs) Bless his heart. He's not going to yell at me either. So I went, and I would talk to these guys, and I'm in that clubhouse. And George Bell decides he's going to talk to the New York media. So I um, (laughs) excused myself and went over there. And when he saw me walk over to him, he started screaming in English and Spanish and, get her out of here, and I'm not talking to you. And back then, I didn't react as (laughs) as I do now. and I just stopped, and everyone was staring at me, and I got tears in my eyes, and I started to walk out of the room, and I'm thinking, God, just let me get out of here before I start to cry. I didn't know what to do, and it was dead silence, like in a movie. And I'm just walking, and all of a sudden I hear, what's her name? And somebody said, oh, Susan something. And I hear, Susan. And I turned around, and it was Jesse Barfield. And he said, I went three for four today. Don't you want to talk to me? And I turned around and I went back and there was Jesse Barfield and the others came over and he said, no, 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 this is for her. You go talk to George Bell. Go ahead. And it was mm-hmm. the kindest thing. And, we, and, and Jesse and I have been friends for over 30 years because of that. And really, a chapter in a children's book about kindness to strangers. And from what I gather, I found out years later, Georgia didn't talk to him for weeks because of that. I can tell you, A, that is a magnificent story. I can tell you that several years later, George Bell wound up on a White Sox team that I covered, and he remained a horse's ass in every conceivable <laughs> way. <laughs> so, you know, it was, so it was scary. My, it's funny because I'm thinking as I'm telling that story, and you can feel um, – I can still feel it. I can still feel what I um, – what I felt like, and I remember what I was wearing, and I remember walking to that door and shaking and holding those. Remember those big old Morantz tape recorders? It was over my yes. shoulder, and it was just awful. And a year later, I was in the Kansas City clubhouse, and they were tough too. And I was talking, but it, I'll tell you what happens in a year. Um, I was interviewing Mark Gubaza, one of the best people ever. He had just thrown a no, uh, one-hitter against the Yankees, and I knew he was from Philly, and his dad was a Yankee fan. Or, and I said, wouldn't it be great if you came? We had a great interview. But in the background, I heard from one side this just awful stuff. I mean, awful words coming out. I just kept going and kept going. And we finished, and, and Mark Gubaza said, oh, gosh, I'm sorry. I said, it's okay. It's a directional, directional mic. No one's going to hear it. And I started walking out, and I see everybody laughing, and I saw a guy, I believe his name was Brad. I know his name was Brad. And I saw him laughing, and I said, hey, Brad. He said, what? And I said, you know, if you had spent more time on your baseball instead of harassing women, you wouldn't have spent 10 years in the minor leagues. And that was the last time anybody (laughs) ever did that to me in a Kansas City clubhouse. (laughs) So in one year, I really learned, didn't I? That is so, so... Like, I, I don't know if laughing is the right reaction to have to that now, you know, because I feel I feel it, it, it's uncomfortable to hear that and, and to hear that in the context of the world we live in today. It, it sounds so different than I'm sure it felt at that time, because today I feel like the world would have your back. And and that time, I have no doubt that you felt very alone in that because you were. I was. Nobody had my back. Nobody. And um, I'll tell you, I always say to, to somebody, the only time I ever felt comfortable in those early, in those mid-80s and, um, was when the Yankees were playing the Oakland A's because a wonderful woman named Susan Fornoff was covering the A's. That's the woman that Dave King sent the rat to in the press box. The only mm-hmm. time we were ever comfortable was when we played each other because I could walk into the Oakland, and that was great. That was Stewart and, and you know, and all those, all those guys and Carney Lansford and the Bash Brothers and LaRussa, and I could walk in there and talk to anybody, and it was perfectly comfortable, and she could go into the Yankee clubhouse, and she felt comfortable, and we used to joke. It's the only time we feel comfortable is when the A's are playing the Yankees. So, so I don't want to spend our entire conversation on this because <laughs> no, there's so much not, more. No, it's not because it, well, it. You know, we, all sta- we all stayed through it, and here we are. It's, it's 30 years later, so I guess it was okay. Yeah, but 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 I, I think I think one more just question is appropriate, which is, how do you see it now? Like we live in in a in a totally different era. We've lived through um, what I think felt like to me anyway as a reckoning for things of this nature some years ago, known as the Me Too movement. And so so looking through that lens at it, how do you see it now, and and how do you feel it is now relative to that? 
Well, relative to that, anything is better. I, I got to tell you, I still think, and I really believe this, I believe that I am tolerated and not accepted. And still, to this day, they would rather there was a guy sitting in the Yankee radio booth. I, I absolutely know that. Um, I don't. I don't think it's changed fast enough. I think um, maybe in five years when I, w- I had said to somebody in, in the Baltimore Sun, there's a wonderful woman doing play-by-play now. Her name is Melanie Newman, and she's in her 20s. And she just got this job this year, and she does, I think, two games a week. And a um, guy from the Baltimore Sun called me and asked me to talk about her, and I did. And I said, you know, I'd really love the day when any time a woman gets to do play-by-play for a major league team or, or football or basketball, she's not treated like some kind of novelty act. And, you know, the Baltimore Orioles did not hire this woman because they want a novelty act. They, they hired her because they think it'll work. And that's, you know, so when we get to the point where someone can be hired and it's not a big darn deal because, you know, a woman is doing this and how do you feel about that, um, then, then I'll be satisfied. I don't know if we're ever going to get there, but maybe there's so many coming up that are in minor leagues now that maybe it'll happen at, at some point. But has it changed? Not fast enough for me. And it's changed somewhat. There are more people there. I, I get it. But I'm still the only one in a booth. Susan Waldman. All right, let, let's talk about... Uh, so many of the things that we can. And you mentioned it earlier. You were the very first voice ever heard on WFAN, July 1st, 1987. Um, I have worked pretty much my entire life in sports talk radio, and I owe just about everything I have in my life to that format and that medium. I was there, as I mentioned, in Chicago when we started five years later based upon the success of WFAN. Tell me about the earliest days there. Um, it was terrible. It was terrible for me. I was just, I mean, I was really overwhelmed. I could always talk sports. I knew a lot. Um, I was not a really good update person. Don't forget, there's no, no computers back then, none of this. You, you literally ripped it off a wire and wrote it, and we were doing 15-minute uh, updates. Um, every 15 minutes we were doing updates full five-minute updates, and I wasn't very good at it, and I'm not a great reader. I can talk, but I'm not a great reader, and this isn't what I wanted to do. I felt we were doing something really special, um, but um, I think people did not particularly want me there. Um, there were a lot of bad things that, that went on there. Um, I can only think of it from my, you know, they tried to fire all the women off the stage, one the first off the uh, air. Uh, the first day, some, the, one of the owners yelled, get that smart-ass with the Boston accent off of my air um, in midday, or it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I mean, there were terrible times for me, but I just kept staying there and staying there. I had thought myself that if WFAN had become less national and more citified and more New York and concentrated totally on, on New York sports, it would be a success in two seconds. But it was put together by people that, you know, brought in national people, and it just didn't work. And to tell you the truth, I, they lost a fortune, and it was only when they, when they went out and uh, bought NBC and moved the, the station down the dial and overcame Don Imus that the team, uh, that the, the station became uh, really good. And Don Imus made that station, and everybody knows it. And, and, but then how about the, the sports talk piece of it? I didn't know any of that, actually. I, I didn't ask you that question <laughs> expecting that. Um, but, but then I, when I think of that station, of course, I remember I miss in the morning. But I also think of Mike and the Mad Dog, who in many ways. So, look, I mean, I, I, I did a show with Mike Ola for 18 years. But that was later. That, yeah. was, that was later. Mike and the how Mad Dog later? came after. Um, a year, maybe? Because I think yeah. I miss came the next year, 88-ish. And I and Wendy, because I was there first. Mike was trying to get a job when I first started. He did. I remember Mike did his first football show in Thanksgiving in 1987 because I was doing updates, and I remember that very very well. But it it came a little bit later, and then with Imus in the morning, and then Mike and the dog in the afternoon, um, it really worked. But I think for me, um, a lot of the things, um, what I think made my career was, and I was sitting next to a guy from Chicago. Uh, was the earthquake in 1989. For some reason, (laughs) my phone line back to WFAN did not go out. And I was on the air live um, when the earthquake happened. I was talking to, by the way, Gary Cohen, who was now the, Mm -hmm. the television voice of the New York Mets. He was doing a talk show. 
and I was on the air with him and stayed on the air with him, and I described the whole thing and um, and got to talk to players because I was there, then realized that I didn't know anybody and how am I going to get back to the city. But that uh, earthquake, because we were able to break in, that's the beauty of, of talk where you could you can break a story, be right there. No one else was on the air. You know, you see Al Michaels saying something, and then it goes, <laughs> and it disappears. I didn't disappear. I didn't disappear for hours. And people were calling in. Wives of all the writers were saying, um, where's this one? Where's that one? And I was taking attendance. Where is everybody? And, and reporting back. And we stayed there, and I stayed there and did city stuff for the whole earthquake. And that's, what, that's the first time anybody took me seriously. Wow. I didn't know that story either. It's interesting. There's a lot of them, you not you know. stuff in Google, because I don't talk about it a lot, Mike. I don't, you know, because people get bored. It's a different world, and nobody cares. But there's a lot of stuff like that, and there are a lot of people along the way that are in there. Well, here's the one that everyone does know, and certainly I knew, and that is that you were responsible for the burying of the hatchet between George Steinbrenner and Yogi Berra. For those who don't know that story, how did that happen? <laughs> Well, um, first of all, you have to know that I really um, paid my dues with George Steinbrenner, and except for my mother and my grandfather, um, George Steinbrenner is right up there with the most important people in my life, because in 88 or 87, because I, I pushed my way in there because... Um, to try and get stories. I was going to be able to break stuff in the middle of the night, and I would, like, chase him down the corridors, and I demanded to be <laughs> given an interview. I flew down to Tampa and said, you didn't talk to me with this, and you didn't take me to that beat writer's lunch because I'm a girl, and so I demand to be talked to, and he really liked that, actually. So he was responsible for a lot of things that happened to me. So... Um, I'll tell you the, the Yogi story. I had never met Yogi Berra. I did not know Yogi Berra. I met him once at Mel Allen's funeral. Phil Rizzuto introduced me, but I didn't know him. And um, our program director, WFAN, Mark Chernoff, said to me one day, this is 99, I believe, or 98, um, he said, we're going to do a show from Yogi's Museum. You are going to uh, broadcast from 6 to 9, and wouldn't it be great if George and Yogi could make up on the show? And I said, yeah, that'll be great. And what are we going to do? And he said, well, 73 Mets, and we'll talk to Yogi. George called me about something. I think it was when um, Otto Graham, his friend, had just died. And we were talking, and I said, George, I want to talk to you about Yogi. And he said, what's wrong? And so I said, okay, and I started talking about it. He said, no, 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 we'll do it during the spring. And I said, no, it's really time. It's really time. Um, what, what does he want? Well, he wants you to apologize. Well, what does he want me to apologize for? And I said, I don't know, George. You're the one that he's mad at. I have no idea. <laughs> we brokered this. I brokered this with Dale Berra. I never talked to Yogi. And I got George to fly to New Jersey. This is January. And to, to, uh, so he flew to Teterboro, and they set it all up, and uh, it, we couldn't tell anybody because it might not have worked. And I would have been talking to <laughs> Yogi in the 73 Mets for three hours, and people I know nothing about. Uh, so it, but I had set up a show just in case it worked, and I'd called Ted Williams and Joe Garagiola and Bill White, and I had it all set in case it worked, because then they could all come on and say how wonderful it was. And George, bless his little heart, he came. He flew all the way up because he wanted it to happen. And <laughs> they went into a room somewhere, and all of a sudden I hear yelling, and then I see Carmen Berra walk in and open the door and go in, and the yelling stopped, and it worked. And, Mike, let me tell you, the greatest thing about that was that when I went on the air um, – I had said, this is Susan Waldman from the Yogi Berra Museum. Mr. Berra, you know Mr. Steinbrenner. Mr. Steinbrenner, you know Mr. Berra. And they started talking and talked about the story. And as I was talking, we were in an auditorium, which was empty because we couldn't tell anybody. But as they were talking, people were running in from the train, from the gym, from stores. I mean, the doors kept opening, and people had heard this on the air, 
And by within 15 minutes, the place was jammed with people. I thought it was the most remarkable thing I'd I'd ever seen because people were so excited about this. And then Yogi became like, you know, the greeter at Yankee Stadium. I can't even remember a time that he wasn't there. He was always there, always sitting in Joe Torre's office and and Joe Girardi after that. And it was great. And he became part of it again, showing people around. And it was great. I mean, don't you think Yogi Berish? I had realized Yogi Berish's grandkids had never been to Yankee Stadium, had never seen him at Yankee Stadium. And then, of course, Yogi Berra Day, you know that, the no-hitter and all that. It was mm-hmm. just amazing, amazing. It, it's, it's the kind of things I'm sitting here thinking so many things up to and including as a talk show host, like that's your dream. Like that's the, <laughs> to be able to actually create something like that happening um, that causes people to come running in off a train yeah. because they want to witness <laughs> what it is you're hosting. Well, you know, it was the people there and in typical George fashion. Now, George was, you know, I was on the other end of those screaming phone calls, too, with George. So it wasn't all, you know, lollipops and roses with George. But I called George at the hotel afterwards, Greedy, and I said, uh, George, what you think? And he said, oh, it's a great day for the New York Yankees. And then his voice changed, that little sarcastic thing that he always got and said, wasn't too effing bad for you, Waltman was it? <laughs> I said, no, George, it was not bad for me at all. And you know, that was that was George. But, you know, I miss him every day, every single day. I miss him. So so tell me about him, because he was I, I grew up in New York City in the 70s. And for anyone who didn't grow up in New York City in the 70s, and both of my parents are from the Bronx, it's it's rather difficult to explain how overwhelming a figure George Steinbrenner was um, mm-hmm. to, to, to that sports scene in a way that I don't know that I'm trying to think what owner in, in sports today could even approach that. I mean, Jerry Jones times a million. Um, how, how would you, so, 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 so Steinbrenner was larger than life. What larger was he than like? life. Um, he also was ahead of everybody by about five years. Uh, and now I think the only one I can think of, maybe Al Davis way back, but he didn't have the yeah. platform that, that George had because in New York, George was larger than life, but always all he cared about was the team and winning. Never took a penny out of the out of the team. And they made money. I mean, they made money all those years. And he put it right back in the team. Never took a penny. The other thing he does is when I say proactive, he was way ahead of the other owners. He was way ahead of everybody on what was going to work. Um, it was 1988 when he said to me, Waldman, one of these days I'm going to make a statement about women in sports and in broadcasting. You're it, and I hope you can take it. He knew what was going to happen. I mean, the, the death threats and things didn't come till a year later. So he, knew, he was ahead of everybody. People now are reactive George was proactive. He would have found, I mean, I think about all the rules and what they're changing and what they're, and I said, George wouldn't have stood for this. He would have, he, I don't know what he would have done, but it wouldn't have been this. They, people now react to what's happened. George did it first, and then they reacted to him. Hmm. He's, he's one that I will always, I remember when he died, I was in shock, and I didn't know him. I never met him in my life, but he didn't seem like someone who would ever die. Like, even when you would see him in those World Series in the early 2000s, when you could see that he was diminished from what he had been, he right. seemed like someone who was going to live. Well, and, and a, lot of, a lot of him does. And I know there's, and everybody talks about, um, you know, the, the, the boisterous George, the mercurial bo- uh, George, which he was. I'll tell you a quick story, then I'll move to another point. Um, mm-hmm. I would get stuff from George, and I would say things on the air, and I was ripping the team one day. I mean, they were awful. Early 90s, they were awful. And, you know, you don't get the number one pick in the draft for nothing. And they were terrible. And I went on the air, and I was ripping something, and I said, oh, George is going to kill me. Oh. And I never heard from him. And then about three weeks later, I said something about the bus being late in Seattle. He called me and screamed at me, how dare you tell people what's going on in there? And you're cut off. Slammed the phone down. And I'm saying, oh, so you never knew what was going to set him off. Obviously, we made up. But um, the, the thing about George that people don't know is that um, still to this day, I will, well, not this year, but um, there will always be at least one person, and there used to be many, 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 that would come up to me and say, Miss Walvin, I just want to introduce myself. I'm so-and-so. Um, my dad 
was a cop or my grandfather was a cop and he mr steinbrenner put my father through school and i don't know who to thank and you're the closest person i can think to thank he hmm. did that he just he'd read in the paper that someone um was killed in action and he'd set up a fund for the kids never tell anybody and he did this for years um, there was a pitcher named Tony Fossus who p- pitched both for the uh, Yankees and the Red Sox. And he said to me one day, I think George put me through school. Can you find out? And it was someplace in Florida, and I guess George had set up a scholarship fund for athletes, and if they had a certain grade level, he would pay for their school. And he never wanted anyone to know. So I went and asked him. <laughs> he started yelling at me, Waldman, what's the, the highest form of charity? Anonymity, George. It's anonymity. And he said, it's in your Bible, Waldman. So I don't care. And I said, well, he just wants to say thank you. And I have a letter from him. <laughs> and, and he had. He, ha- he had actually put this guy through school. And they're all over the place. And I think that's the, the side, you know, people don't know about about George. Um, when he was suspended, um, he called me one day and he said, is your dad still alive? And I said, yeah. He said, what's, the, what's your address at home? And I grew up in Boston. And it was 1990, I believe, um, because the Red Sox were in the playoffs. He sent my father his tickets for Fenway Park because the owners get two tickets. He couldn't go. He sent them to my father. Wow. Didn't ask, didn't say anything, went. just sent them. And he went to the game. Yes. Sitting in the second row, all dressed up with his best friend. Yep. <laughs> I That's think the Red Sox were swept by the A's in that series. But it was John. That, that, that also was George. People fired people, you know, whatever. That, he, they were very, there were two sides. But we will never see his like again. I, I, don't, I don't think the times would allow it. I don't, you know, the structure now is, is very different. But... Yeah, those are the things that we miss. People like that. People like that. Um, the, he's gone now, too, but Eddie Einhorn, who owned the Chicago White Sox with Jerry Reinsdorf, mm-hmm. when uh, the, the new stadium was built, we had Eddie on the air. He's from here. He was from here, and he would love to come on with John and me. And he came on, and he looked at this place, and he said, on the air, he said, you know, every owner in baseball should get down on their knees and thank their lucky stars that George Steinbrenner was in this world because they are all billionaires because of George Steinbrenner. <laughs> in so many ways it's so in, true he was such an yeah. iconic larger than life figure alright now before we go I have to mention that before I ever wanted to be a sports announcer my true dream in life was to be in musical theater Now I would have given anything to be a Broadway song and dance man but I had two problems one is I can't sing and the other is I can't dance now you and I, I assume most people know this and everyone who's ever heard you sing uh, the national anthem before the game has certainly heard it. Uh, you were a, a a a star of musical theater before you went in and had a whole full career in that. Before you went into broadcasting, tell me about being on the stage. Well, that that was all I ever wanted to do my whole life. I mean, obviously, I grew up. I mean, I'm old, so I grew up you know, in the '50s, early '60s. I was always going to be a Broadway star. That was always, and I could always sing. And to me, um, I always worked. I, I always worked, but I, w- I was just never famous. And, there's a, and when you do Broadway musicals and clubs and things, that's what you, it's the work that you want to do. Um, and that, w- that was me. But as I was getting older, I did not become what I wanted to become. Um, you know, I wanted to come to New York to be combination Ethel Merman, Mary Martin, Barbara Streisand, Barbara Cook, but there already were those people. And so as I was getting older and the music was changing and Broadway changed from, from Guys and Dolls and Man La Mancha, of which I bought my house from is, was Man La Mancha, um, to Andrew Lloyd Webber and Avita and different kinds of music. And I said, I, I'd, better, I'd better find something else to do or I'm going to be the queen of the revivals for the rest of my life and I'm going to be auditioning for people's mothers and, grandpa- and grandmothers. Hmm. And so I, the only other thing I knew <laughs> was sports. I said, well, this would be cute. You know, I used to say, how I used to stay within sports. I mean, I had my own season ticket, or my grandfather told me it was my own season ticket. It probably wasn't. When I was three at Fenway Park, I could literally reach out and touch Ted Williams. So I was, 
um, you know, I called people like Johnny Pesky and Ted Williams, Uncle Uncle Johnny and Uncle Teddy, till till the day they died, and I've known them since I was was a baby. But it was, and I thought I knew things, and I said, you know, this would be cool. I don't see any women here. Why don't I just do this? But do I miss there? Yeah, every day. If I had been successful, I, more successful, or successful like, well, like I am now. I mean, there were a million of me in theater. Right now, there's not a million of me. I hope there will be at some point. But, it's, but it, it was the only thing I could think of to do. Then it became something else. I thought it would be a way to make some money and do some sports commentary. I did not know, <laughs> I did not know that I would be hated on site because I was female. It, that had never happened to me before. Well, so as a, as a final thought then, I would ask, if there is, and I hope there are many, um, but at least one teenage girl listening to this conversation who loves sports and dreams of being an announcer, what do you, Susan Waldman, want her to know? Um, don't let anybody tell you no. And don't want to be the next Susan Waldman or Jessica Mendoza or, D- or Doris Burke. Be the first you. You don't, we don't want, that's what got me in trouble in theater. I wanted to be the next Mary Martin. There already was Mary Martin. So be the first you. And really what I always say to young women when I, when I talk, look in the mirror and ask yourself, do I have something to give to this profession that nobody else has? And if you can answer yes, don't let anybody tell you no. Because someone eventually will say yes. I promise you. There was a great actress named Ruth Gordon, and if you're too young to know who that was, she was the old woman in Harold and Maude, but she was a major yeah. star way back when, when she was young and gorgeous. And she always said, there are no failures on Broadway or in life, only people that give up too soon. Hmm. That's a fabulous story. Susan Waldman, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, um, you didn't know it, but you are the reason <laughs> that I've had my career which has served me awfully well, and I have enjoyed listening to you, and my family enjoys listening to you. Um, and I thank you very much for this time. I wish you and your family nothing but the best, and I hope we talk again soon. Thank you very oh, much. I hope so, too, and right back at you at everything that you said. You're the best, Mike. Thank you. All right, that's my conversation with Susan Waldman. It was a delight to have her and my endless appreciation to her during this Yankee baseball playoff run for making the time to chat with me. In the meantime... Last week, I had the extraordinary opportunity to interview the legendary Vin Scully, who is, in my opinion, and I think the opinion of most, the greatest sports announcer that ever lived. He took the time to chat with me on my radio show, Greenie. Um, he was on on the four-year anniversary to the day that he had called his last Dodger game. And the reaction has been so extraordinary. People were so happy to hear his voice that we thought we would put it on here for you as well. So in case you missed it from the radio last week, here was my conversation with the one, the only, the legend, Vin Scully. Four years to the day since Vin Scully broadcast his last Dodger game, and it it is really such a treat for me. I can't tell you the reaction that I'm getting from people when I told them you were going to be with me. So let's go through as much as we can in the time that we have. And I'd like to start at the very beginning. I, I mentioned that you began your broadcasting career in 1950. In Brooklyn, what, what are your, as you look back on it now, your fondest recollections of those earliest days for you in Brooklyn? Well, we had a relationship in the broadcast booth that I don't believe we'll ever see again. In essence, Red Barber was the father. Connie Desmond was the older brother. And I was the kid brother. And uh, thank goodness, both Red and Connie made sure that I would uh, get through it without making too many gaps or mistakes. And once in a while, because he really cared that I would succeed, Red Barber would treat me like a father and son relationship so that he would correct me after the game, not on the air. Uh, I'll always remember doing my first season, I mentioned that Willie Mays, was the uh, finest or greatest ball player I ever saw. And when the broadcast ended, Red said, young Scully, he said, you have not been around long enough to tell us <laughs> the greatest ball player you ever saw. And immediately I was chastened and realized he was correct. And then Connie, being the older brother, 
and he would say, oh, come on, you're fine. You're doing great. Let, let, you know. So it was a, a remarkable atmosphere, and I don't think you'll ever see or hear that again. It's an extraordinary story. In your very first game, Jackie Robinson was hitting cleanup. And, Vin, in light of the climate in this country right now, he seems especially relevant, maybe as much so as practically ever. When you think of him today, of Jackie Robinson, what do you think of? Well, I think of an outstanding ball player. I can see that big smile and laugh. I remember we ice skated, or at least he was going to try, up in Grossinger's in New York. That's a famous resort. And uh, interesting little bit of a story Uh, We were both sent up there to talk to the patronage at Grossinger's about baseball. It was uh, an idea to promote fans and anyway, to stir interest. And I arrived being a New Yorker kid raised in ice skating in the winter. I carried my skates. Jackie and his wife, Rachel, arrived. Rachel was about seven months pregnant. And Jack said, oh, you're going to go skating? And I said, yeah. He said, well, I'll go with you. I said, well, fine. (laughs) So Jackie and I went into the dressing room. Meanwhile, Rachel, at seven months pregnant, went with the lady to get her skates, and I was scared to death about her. Anyway, Jackie and I are sitting alongside of each other, putting on our skates. And Jackie, out of the blue, suddenly said to me, when we go out there, I'll race you. And I was shocked, and I looked at Jackie, and I said, Jack, you're from Southern California, a football star, baseball star, great athlete. I never knew you skated. And he said, I've never been on skates in my life. And I said, well, there's no way that you could beat me. And he said, no, but that's how I learned. The competitive spirit inside that man was truly remarkable. And we were good friends. Interesting for me, my first game to broadcast was in Philadelphia. The Dodgers opened that year. And during spring training, I got to know Don Newcomb very well, God rest his soul. And uh, Nuke was going to pitch that game. And I would say to him, come on, Don, really be ready for my debut. I want you to strike out everybody. And, of course, with that big belly laugh, he'd laugh. And... uh, So before the game, Red assigned me, we'll say the fourth inning. And I said, great. And and then I was thinking, I'm going to broadcast Don Newcomb's first game. What a treat this is. Newcomb was knocked out of the game before we got to my inning. So uh, And we gagged about that ever since. I mean, that was a running gag with uh, Newcomb and myself. The unmistakable, legendary voice of Vin Scully with me. He is now on Twitter. Everyone in the world should be following Vin Scully, who is on Twitter at the Vin Scully. Let me ask you, if I may, the impossible questions that I'm sure you are asked literally every single day. And we'll start with this one. What is the greatest game, in your opinion, the greatest game you ever called? The greatest game I ever called, probably because of the significance of it, a perfect game in the World Series. I don't know how you can top that very often. Uh, Koufax's perfect game was a magnificent spectacle where uh, the Dodgers only had one hit against Bob Henley. But I guess for someone to pitch a perfect game on the World Series, it can't get much better than that. Although, when MLB began to broadcast, the very first thing they did, their opening telecast, was that World Series game pitched by Don Larson. And I was watching football in the late fall, and I knew that game was going to come on, and I had never seen it. And so I figured out when it would start and when it would be the time where the great Mel Allen would hand it over to me. And I went back to the baseball, and sure enough, It was the middle of the fifth inning, and Mel handed it to me, and I thought, oh, great, I'm going to be able to listen because I'd never heard it before. And the telecast began for me, and it was so dull, it was excruciating to me (laughs) because in those days, 
the newspaper people constantly badgered announcers saying that they talk too much. So uh, Mel and I not all barely talked on the air. We also did not say anything about the fact that a perfect game was evolving. Uh, I guess it started with Mel because in the first four and a half innings, he referred not to a no-hitter, but so that's the 10th consecutive out, the 11th consecutive. So when I got mm-hmm. it, I certainly deferred to the great Mal Allen, and I continued that that's the 18th consecutive, the 19th. <laughs> and meanwhile, the camera work it was not as sophisticated as it is today, and you basically had one shot, and that was uh, the mound and the hitter in Yankee Stadium, for instance. And to be honest, I thought the broadcast was so dull that I turned it off and went back to football. My goodness, Vin Scully is with me. I have a suspicion others might feel differently, but it is thrilling to hear you or or fascinating to hear you say that. Continuing the impossible questions, uh, you got in trouble in your first broadcast, you said, for naming Willie Mays as the greatest player you'd ever seen. Now, if I were to ask you, I think you were more than equipped to answer. Who is the greatest player you ever saw? Well, I would still say Willie Mays, but again, <laughs> remember, I grew up watching the National League. I worked the National League. We didn't have interleague play. I realized that there were great players, especially Joe DiMaggio, and uh, the other numbers that were put up by Mickey Mantle probably equate to the same, if not even slightly better than Mays. But because of Mantle's injury to his leg, I think he stepped in a drainage, something in Yankee Stadium, and from then on he couldn't cover the ground that he normally could. But Mays was spectacular every day he played, and I just thought, in my humble opinion, because there are certainly many great players, but I thought that uh, all around the threat of a home run, a base hit, a stolen base, a great catch, a great throw, uh, all of that defined Willie Mays. And one other thing about Mays that always struck me, when I was in school trying to play baseball at Fordham, I, I played center field. And, of course, my big concern was charging a base hit and having it go through my legs and go all the way to the center field fence. And I always watched big league center fielders especially. And when the Dodgers played in the polar grounds, it was, I believe, 483 feet away from the base of the clubhouse to home plate. And every outfielder I ever saw was a little, what would be the right word, almost timid about a base hit getting through him and rolling all the way to eternity. Willie Mays played center field like he was a shortstop. There was not a thought in his mind that the ball might get away from him or roll all the way to the center field clubhouse. Uh, And that struck me, too, as just part the overall picture of Mays as a great player. Vin Scully is with me. You can follow him on Twitter at TheVinScully right now. You know, I opened this conversation by saying that the relationship fans have with an announcer is such a special one. How would you describe that relationship in reverse? How would you describe the relationship that you had for all those years with them? I was quoted several times, and I meant it from the bottom of my heart. I often told the crowds that I needed you more than you needed me. And when I was retiring, the last week that I did games at Dodger Stadium, I had a sign made, and the sign draped over the wall of the clubhouse, uh, actually the broadcasting booth, and it just simply said, I'll miss you, Vin. And that was my relationship with the fans. The last day of the season, uh, the Dodgers allowed me play a recording on the PA system, my singing, God bless us, of Wind Beneath My Wings. I had made a recording about that dedicated to my wife, Sandy, 
And I just wanted the crowd to know how I felt. So on the last day of Scully at the Dodger Stadium, the crowd showed great patience. So did the team. They were bursting to celebrate, but they stood quietly in the middle of the diamond, and they played Wind Beneath My Wings, the song that was for my wife. But on that particular day, I was dedicating it to the fans. It's beautifully said. I have limited time with you here, but I have, I have one last question, if I may. You know, Vince Scully, our nation is in a divided and at times disheartening place. And I just wonder over the many years, what role have you seen the game of baseball play historically during challenging times in our nation? And what role do you think it can play now? Well, that's asking a lot of me because in some respect, despite broadcasting a lot of games, I live a very small, quiet life. All I know is that in Ebbets Field, and certainly here at Dodger Stadium, I've seen black and white players get along extremely well. They uh, have a shared experience of the game, and they each have a strong desire to win. And so I keep thinking to myself, please, God, uh, bring everyone in America together like the ball players are. Let them all agree. We want to live happily and peacefully in this world. And let's just stop talking. Let's stop protesting and setting fire to places. Somebody has to get leaders from either side to sit down and see if we can't get along like a, a good baseball team does. You forget all about color. When you're playing a game, you should be able to forget all about player living your days out in this world. Vince Gully, I, I can't begin to tell you how much it means to me that you took this time today. I know that your schedule remains busy, and, and I also I just can't tell you how much it meant to people to know that you were coming on and to hear your voice today and any day. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. The very best to you and to your family, and I hope we get to do it again sometime. Thank you, Mike. You've been very generous in your compliments, for which I really appreciate. And above all, it's been an honor to have a chance to chat with you. So God bless and continued success. All right, what a day this has been. Thank you, everybody, for spending some time with us here on I'm Interested. Susan Waldman, thank you. Vin Scully, thank you. And again, if you, who are listening to me right now, would are, are interested in this podcast continuing beyond this season, if you like these long-form interviews, then send me that message by subscribing and rating and reviewing this podcast, wherever it is that you find your podcast. If you subscribe, if you rate this podcast favorably and you write a favorable review, I will see all of those and that will send me the message that you're interested in this continuing. I love doing these long form interviews and if you want me to continue doing them, I will. And we'll continue to put these out as regularly as we can and as often as we can find the most interesting guests. So again, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast if you have the moment, and that'll let me know you'd like it to continue. In the meantime, I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. This is I'm Interested, and I'm Greeny.